Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. Thank you for joining us on KCBS In-Depth. I'm Jane McMillan. Well, reaction continues around the world and here at home to President Trump's decision to pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Agreement. To sort out what this means for the U.S. and for the planet, I'm joined by Executive Director of the California Academy of Sciences, Dr. Jonathan Foley. Dr. Foley is a globally recognized scientist leading a globally recognized scientific and education institution working to understand and protect life on Earth. The California Academy of Sciences in Golden Gate Park is home to the Morrison Planetarium, the Kimball Natural History Museum, the Osher Rainforest, and the Steinhardt Aquarium, with research scientists and projects going on all over the world. Dr. Jonathan Foley, welcome back to KCBS In-Depth. We're happy to have you this weekend. Great. Well, thank you so much for having me back. Well, we're talking about uh, the decision of the president to pull the United States out of the Paris Climate Accord. Mm. I'm going to ask you to kind of go through it with us, what it called for, dispel any myths that may be flying around about um, the reasons why we were in, the reasons why we're getting out. But first, I want to give you an opportunity as one of our region's preeminent scientists and globally known to weigh in on your feelings about this. Well, it was just monumentally stupid. I don't know what else to call it. It's um, not only bad for the planet, um, you know, slowing and averting dangerous climate change is one of the top priorities for the century for everyone in the world, including Americans. Uh, it's also bad for American business, because now we have two sets of rules. We have the rule for the rest of the global economy, and then we have Trump's imagination of how the U.S. economy is going to work in the future. And uh, so it's not just a climate harmful uh, decision. It's one that's really harmful to American business, to American enterprise, and to American reputation around the world. Um, this doesn't make any sense. It's bad for America, it's bad for the economy, and it's certainly bad for the planet. Let's talk about the accord itself. So tell us about how the accord was put together, how it worked. It, you know, mm -hmm. and, and I will say President Trump is not the first not to sign on or to participate. George Bush president uh, did not participate in Kyoto, That's which correct, would yeah. have had some teeth to it and mm -hmm. was a precursor of of the Paris Climate Agreement. So again, take us, you know, from Kyoto to this the Paris Climate Accord and what it calls for, uh, what it does and does not do. Yeah, well, this is probably kind of confusing. So let me start with the basics. Um, the world's governments through the United Nations have set up something called a UN Convention on, or Framework Convention, it's called, on climate change. And it's basically to try to set up a roadmap towards getting international agreements and how do we limit the emissions of gases like CO2 and methane and other stuff that are causing climate change. So it's just kind of a framework to begin the conversations of eventually what could become like treaties around the world. So it's very 
preliminary, and has been going on for well over 20, 25 years. So along the way, we had the Kyoto Protocols, which um, Bush Sr. declined to uh, engage the United States in. Although, ironically, the U.S. more than cut our emissions than we would needed to have done to have been compliant with Kyoto. We actually beat our Kyoto goals, even though we never signed up for them, which is kind of bizarre. We'll get back to that in a minute, I Yes, hope. I wanted to ask about that. Yeah. So it shows, you know, how much or how little federal policy really matters sometimes. Um, but now we have the Paris Accords. Um, Paris Accords were met, uh, were achieved about a year ago. They were basically an agreement of all of the nations of the world except two: Nicaragua, which said they weren't good enough. They thought Paris didn't go far enough, so they stepped away in sort of protest, and Syria. So Syria is the only country in the world that basically, until the United States the other day, uh, that said, no, 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 we don't want to participate in this. Well, let's remember what's going on in Syria. They have a civil war and they're run by a tyrant. So, you know, that, that's one thing that's going on. So we're joining a, a club that I'm not sure the U.S. really wants to be part of. But the Paris Accords were an agreement to, uh, among all the nations of the world, to essentially limit the amount of climate change we'll see in the future to one and a half degrees warmer than uh, normal. Uh, we're already about one degree warmer than normal uh, from the historical point of view, which doesn't sound like a lot, but it's enough to disturb our global weather patterns. We're definitely beginning to notice it. So this would be kind of putting on the brakes and over the next decades, learning how to slow down the emissions of climate change gases like CO2 so that we wouldn't have warmer than about one and a half degrees. Uh, but how we did it, the timing of how you do that and how you implement it and how binding it is was up to the individual countries. There was nothing going to hurt us by staying in this agreement. It just was kind of a pledge that we're going to try to do this and we'll set our own timeline, our own ways of doing things and keep on going. It was just the beginning of a framework. So it's not like if we didn't meet the goals that every American had to turn over their car keys or something. Well, you know, it's not bad for us. And in fact, it was going to be setting up agreements that would be the basis for almost all future international business. Uh, this is all the companies in the world would have to be kind of engaged in this thinking as well. So for us to step out of that framework makes us the kind of, you know, the oddball of the global economy. We literally are joining now only Syria and Nicaragua. Nicaragua, I think, will sign up for Paris just to spite us now, even though they thought it didn't go far enough. So it's very, very strange. Um, so the Paris Accords were aiming ambitiously at like one and a half degrees warmer, and that would require um, a pretty steep decline in emissions um, around the world. But the U.S. was already more than halfway towards meeting our goals for the 2020s. We actually are on track right now. This would not have been a major departure from what the U.S. was already starting to do. In fact, uh, the United States, our emissions of greenhouse gases peaked in 2007 and have been going down ever since. Um, and it's been going down quite dramatically, actually, due to increases in energy efficiency. Cars are getting more efficient. Businesses are getting more efficient. The airline industry is getting more efficient. We're, we're getting better at technology. Uh, we're also deploying more and more renewable sources of energy. Solar is getting cheaper by the day. Wind power is strong. We're getting better battery storage, thanks to like companies like Tesla. We're seeing you know incredible innovations in renewables and batteries and grids, mostly led by American firms, many of which are based in California. And so um, I don't know why anybody would be afraid of the Paris Accords, because we were going to meet them anyway. No big deal. And in fact, it was doing so while creating jobs in America and leading a lot of industries internationally. So, you know, it's very strange that we stepped away from this. It makes no sense. What about the discussions uh, that certain countries got better quote-unquote deals in this voluntary, and I want to stress that because 
this is a voluntary agreement yeah. between all the nations of the world, but that developing, what, what, what's the difference between developed and developing countries and how uh, we would all approach reaching these goals? Well, th- this is true. There are different goals for different countries, and it is all voluntary. So this is all negotiated. There's nobody with a gun to each other's head saying, this is what you have to do. So we're just committing ourselves to collectively solve the global problem. And the atmosphere doesn't care. Uh, where the emissions come from. It's all mixed up in the air anyway. So if we can reduce emissions in the U.S. or in China or Nigeria or Italy, it doesn't really matter. Uh, We need to do it everywhere, and we do it at different rates. But the thing that the U.S. has to uh, really offer some preeminent leadership on is for two reasons. One is we are the by far the biggest emitter in history of greenhouse gases. If you look at the entire history of you know, the last 200 years or so, and you look at the sum, the cumulative sum of emissions, the U.S. is by far the biggest historical polluter of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And so a lot of that extra CO2 in the air has little American flags on it. That's ours. And it's still in the air from even 100 years ago. A lot of it is still there. Um, Nowadays, China is the biggest emitter per year it has exceeded us probably about 10 years ago, 5, 10 years ago, something like that. But if you look over the cumulative emissions, which is what the atmosphere cares about, it's by far the United States. But recently, China has started to exceed us, but only very recently. So that's the fact. We're the biggest polluter in history for climate change. Second, if you look at the per capita, that is per per person emissions, how much do we individually release into the atmosphere? It's enormous. It's still about the largest in the world of any large country. So yeah, China emits more than we do this year, but they have you know five times our population roughly. So of course they emit a bit more. There's a lot more people there. So the idea is the U.S. really does need to take kind of a leading role in reducing emissions because our emissions per person are the highest of the world's largest industrialized countries, and we've polluted the most over history to begin with. So that does kind of make it look like the U.S. has to do a bit more than some other countries because, well, we do. Um, But the good news is we were already doing it. The only good thing about the fact the U.S. was sort of a big emitter and kind of inefficient with energy and not very clean energy is that we had so much opportunity to do better. The average German, for example, you know, emits about half of what the average American does, but they live an equal, if not better, quality of life than the U.S. So there are many ways we could get more efficient with more renewables and so on. Incidentally, um, in Northern California, Um, Our emissions of greenhouse gases compared to the average American are probably about half of what the average Americans are, because in Northern California, our electrical grids are so clean. We don't burn coal in California, like, at all. And a lot of our power is generated from hydro, from solar, from wind, a little bit of nuclear, and things that don't release CO2. So just California alone is about twice as um, good on climate change as the rest of the country, and some places far more. So that's pretty good. Uh, There's a lot of room for improvement, and we're already on track. If you're just joining us, we are talking about the Paris Climate Accord, the United States pulling out, uh, how that may or may not affect uh, our standing in the world and the science behind it all, the facts, actually, with Dr. Jonathan Foley, and he is the executive director of the California Academy of Sciences. I'm Jane McMillan. So what you're saying is is that the idea of what the president said about some countries getting a better deal uh, than the U.S. is based on the historical, the historic amount of pollution and for developing countries to catch up to gaining yeah. technology and business yeah. to meet the. So it's a different pace for everyone to meet the same goal 
exactly, at, at yeah. the same time. So it's like a fitness plan. Like you know, if you're flabby and out of shape, you've got to work a little harder than somebody who's really trim and has been running marathons. You know, you just everybody has a different plan. And in fact, if anything, if you really looked at the real equity issues about how much pollution in the atmosphere is due to U.S. activities over time, how rich we are, how inefficient we are. In fact, we were getting a great deal. We were doing probably less than we really should if you were trying to be totally fair to the world. So I don't know what the heck Trump is talking about. I think that's just narcissism uh, or this idea that America is, you know, when he says America first, he doesn't really mean that. I think he means everybody else last. You know what I mean? It's kind of screw the world kind of attitude, which I think is what's a lot of his thinking right now compared to actually making America stronger. What would make America truly great in the future is to be a leader in renewable energy, in the future of energy systems, the future of transportation, to be working with people like Elon Musk and others here in California to lead the new energy economy, to lead the new transportation revolution, to be the leader in producing those services for the world. Now he's tying one hand behind our back. It's going to hurt California's economy and the world because of just, I I don't know what. It doesn't even make any sense. What about the idea that the president talked about uh, when he made this announcement to withdraw from the Paris Accord to renegotiate? To renegotiate a better position in the Paris Accord for the United States. Did that does that make sense within the framework no, of this organization or the, this agreement? No, it doesn't. In fact, the uh, the other leading countries are saying, "Sorry, uh, those negotiations already happened, and by leaving the framework, you've foregone any inf- you know chance to influence it." So, no, that, that's uh, he didn't even do his homework on that. I don't. I dare. I bet he didn't even read the bloody accords. I'd, I'd be stunned if he actually read them or had anybody brief him on this. Because uh, it's pretty clear there's no way for us to influence it if we step out of it. And it had already the deal had already been struck, basically. So, I mean, there's room to wiggle within it. But we were – I mean, these are the facts. We were already halfway to meeting the goal that we set out for ourselves anyway. We'd have to have done a little more lifting, but it all would have done things to create American jobs, improve the American economy. And we could have easily done them all, I'm convinced. Instead, he walks away from it as a petulant child, basically, saying, well, I would have cut a better deal without even realizing he's not allowed to renegotiate it in the first place. And so this is not only a failure of scientific reasoning, it's a failure of just international policy and thinking and law. It's just crazy. Certainly, there has been a great deal of outcry uh, from, yeah. from not only um, you know environmentalists, but from elected officials, from military leaders, from business leaders. But there have also been some editorials that have come out in favor of the president's position. The New York Post says, ditching Paris deal, Trump does right by America and the world. The Wall Street Journal uh, has had um, opinion piece that uh, supports the president. Uh, one talks about putting America's power grid first. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to Make sure we're looking at all of these points fairly. Do you see any weight in any of these arguments? Not really. I think this is a flawed under. I mean, let, let me just be honest. I mean, those are fairly predictable editorials who are not being objective at all. You could have written those editorials 10 years ago, and they'll be there 10 years from now. Um, that The New York Post is always going to take a position like that. And it's not based on actual reasoning. It's just based on some tribalism view that they're always going to be saying stuff like that. They've been doing it forever. So I don't really hitch a lot of weight to that. They, they didn't really weren't thinking. They're just knee-jerk reacting to something just the way they always have. Um, the fact of the matter is uh, coal is dead because it's too expensive. 
natural gas and renewables are far cheaper than coal. We're not going back. Coal uh, power plants are being shut down left and right, no matter what Trump says. And even in China and India, coal power plants are being canceled because solar is getting cheaper. Natural gas is far cheaper. That's what's killing coal, not policy. Economics is what's killing coal. Uh, second is, you know, the American power grid needs to adapt to the 21st century, and that's going to require a mix of energy sources like renewables, like natural gas, which a lot of environmentalists don't like, but it's going to be around for a while. It's also going to include energy storage technologies. It's also going to include much more, you know, smart grids, things that kind of adapt to changing conditions to what people need, when they need it, and where they need it. Uh, it's going to have people generating power in their own homes, feeding into their grids, and that kind of thing. If you want a 21st century economy, we need to invest in 21st century infrastructure. What they want to do is bring us back to the early 20th century. That's never going to happen. So I think demonstrably, a PG&E, for example, a Fortune 500 company here in the Bay Area, a leader in energy innovation, is stepping out and saying, no, we want the Paris Accords. In fact, every major utility in the country is saying this as well. So you have companies led by very smart CEOs, including uh, PG&E, Levi Strauss, Salesforce, and of course, Tesla, Apple, and other very smart people, very smart companies right here in the Bay Area, all unanimously and loudly saying, no, the Paris Accords were good for American business. If you took the long view, we want to go back in. So, you know, they're just wrong. Uh, those editorials are just wrong. Since the Paris Accord has no teeth, this is all voluntary. Mm -hmm. Since the United States has been cutting emissions on our own, yeah. what's the downside of for, for America and for the world? But for if we're going to look at the America first... Uh, reasoning given by the administration. What's the downside of the United States pulling out? Can we just keep doing this on our own? What What's going to happen? Well, yeah, I mean, if there's a silver lining here, Trump may have inadvertently spurred much more climate action uh, by cities, by states, by companies, by nonprofits, um, who are just so outraged at what Trump has done here. Because, you know, we have a federal government for a reason, is to protect the American interest and our security around the nation. Trump has miserably failed at doing so uh, in terms of our national security, in terms of our economy, and our standing in the world. He has failed spectacularly a president, even in just this one incident, uh, in a way that's breathtakingly bad. I mean, he no longer has any standing with any leader in the world right now. Uh, you know, that's not good to be ostracized by the entire planet, but that's what he's done. Fortunately, though, other leaders like Jerry Brown, like Governor Cuomo in New York, former mayor uh, Michael Bloomberg, and many, many others are saying, the hell with it. We will lead. If, if Washington, D.C. can't lead, then we will. So we're seeing leadership from California, from New York, from uh, states all over the country, Washington State, Minnesota, for example, and many others saying, we will obey the uh, Paris Accords. We're seeing dozens and dozens of mayors stepping up and saying, we'll do it. You're seeing dozens and dozens of Fortune 500 saying, we will. So I'm willing to bet right now that at least the majority of the U.S. economy and population will go ahead with the Paris Accords. Just Trump won't. Now, who's that really hurting? It's hurting the federal government, but American leadership isn't in the federal government anymore, it looks like, and it's going to emerge elsewhere. Uh, the problem is um, we need a federal government to actually participate in Paris. It's not clear how cities and states can totally engage in international policymaking like that. Uh, and also, it leaves some states far behind. 
uh, that won't participate for political reasons, and the others will move ahead. So it, what worries me, it's a further way of pulling the country apart. Is it going to be red states are going to increase emissions and blue states lower them? I mean, I don't know. Economic divide yeah. as well, if it, if it turns out to impact business and energy prices. Well, exactly, too. And it means different sets of rules for different parts of the country or something. Like that. I mean, it's just a bad, bad idea. But um, I guess if there is a silver lining is that American, you know, American leadership doesn't mean U.S. government leadership anymore. And I'm actually really proud of the fact that American leadership across the nation is standing up maybe stronger than ever and saying, no, we believe that this is an important deal for us. Uh, companies, cities, states, universities, um, nonprofits, museums are all waving you know, their hands up in the air saying, hey, count us in. We will lead if Trump won't. Um, I'm kind of proud of that. I think that's kind of nice. It's just sad that we need to. And uh, it means it'll be an uneven response. It'll be slower than it could have otherwise been. And it's putting the future at risk, which we didn't need to do. So some folks would folks would say, well, okay, so we're, we're going to go ahead. We're going to plow ahead cities, counties, states. Uh, the United States was already on a path reducing uh, these emissions. So should we all have our hair on fire about the fact that the president did this? I think it's very important that, that uh, we do pay attention to this because, um, the, you know, it is the federal response. I mean, the federal government is still the largest entity in the United States. It's the biggest purchaser of goods and services. It does set a lot of uh, for, uh, international uh, policy. Of course, all international policy goes through Washington, but also national policy around energy, around uh, investments in renewable energy, and so on. But when you look at this incident combined with the overall attacks on climate science, on science generally by the administration, it's really frightening. Uh, Trump's budget proposal eliminates a whole art, um, part of the Department of Energy called ARPA-E, which is focusing on developing next-generation renewable energy technologies. We know, in Northern California especially, how important it is to invest in new technology, um, without which we wouldn't have our iPhones and Uber apps and all the kind of things we enjoy today, but also all the jobs it creates. So this is a job-killing president. He's getting rid of jobs in America uh, by getting rid of renewable energy investments from RPE and Department of Energy. He's eliminating whole programs of the EPA that are designed to keep us safe and keep us from harm, including from climate change, but other environmental issues. He's eliminating, at least proposing to, whole parts of NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration, which watches out for storms and hurricanes and things like that, just so we don't track climate change, too. Um, you know, if you have a disagreement about climate change, you don't throw out the thermometers, but that's what he's doing. Uh, so it's really kind of a part of a larger rubric, which is really scary. It's not just this one treaty. It's this whole, like, let's stick our head in the sand. Let's get rid of the science. Let's muzzle the scientists and let's stop investing in our future. Uh, I can't think of a more backward way to begin the 21st century than this. Um, no other nation in the world is being this stupid about it. Fortunately, though, um, despite what's happening in Washington, we're having good work happening in California, in cities and states uh, around the country, and by business. But it could be more, and it could be so much better if the federal government played its normal role of supporting this kind of work. Let's talk about the work that California Academy of Sciences scientists are doing all mm -hmm. over the world and, and maybe try to bring the reality of of climate change and and the personal story of what science can tell us um, a little closer to home. Uh, talk about some of the work that's going on where we're, yeah, yeah. we're already seeing the impacts of climate change because I think for it's a such a huge <clears throat> idea to wrap one's mind around if we're not yeah. scientists um, and it's hard to 
get humans in general to take action on anything that seems to be out in the future. So yeah. what are your scientists, what are some of the the projects that are going on, and what is being seen right now in terms of impacts of climate change? Well, you know, our whole region is blessed with uh, a number of world-class scientific institutions, whether it's, you know, UC Berkeley or Stanford and Davis and Santa Cruz and the Cal Academy and many others. So um, what we're finding, I think, if you look across the broader scientific community from the Bay Area, which include many of the world's best scientists in these issues, is deeply, deeply troubling. Uh, we're seeing, of course, the global steady rise of temperatures that each year seems to be breaking the record from the year before of warmer and warmer and warmer. And so we're seeing more and more of that everywhere, all over the planet, and we've been seeing it for decades. So there's really no question the planet is slowly and steadily warming. But now we're starting to see it show up in things like our ice sheets and snowpack, things that you know provide water to Californians, for example, or that we're seeing the melting of glacial ice in you know Antarctica or Greenland and things at unprecedented rates. We're also seeing the biological response um, that you know life is responding to the warmer planet. Um, at the Cal Academy, for example, we do a lot of tracking of species and where they are and when they are using something called iNaturalist. It's an app you can download onto your phone. Um, check it out at iNaturalist.org and you can download it for Android or iPhone. But it's um, millions and millions of observations made by regular folks tracking plants and animals all around the world, using, taking a picture on their smartphone, recording the time and the place, and it goes up into the cloud where scientists can help track it. So we're seeing a species of animals, for example, moving very quickly up the coast of California. There's this thing called a nudibranch, which is just a fancy word for a sea slug. Uh, it's a little slimy dude that lives out in the and the intertidal part of the ocean. And um, there's one called the Hopkins Rose, which is bright pink. It looks like bubble gum or Barbie huh. pink, mm -hmm. little sea slug. Normally, you'd find them down around Santa Barbara, but nowadays, you find them way the heck up here. In fact, you see them up in Humboldt County now. That's not supposed to be that way. That's a hike for a sea slug. Yeah, they're they're not very big. <laughs> you know, well, or fast. Yeah, well, they're reproducing and kind of moving. Yeah. Their eggs are swimming around better than they do, maybe. But the other thing is... Um, we're seeing, for example, whales moving around in ways that are kind of bizarre. We saw a bride's head whale, uh, which is usually found around Tahiti, died around Highway 37 inside the bay. We went and recovered the remains and did an autopsy. I'm like, what the heck is this warm water tropical whale doing in the San Francisco Bay? But there it was. Uh, we've seen Guadalupe fur seals, uh, which are found off the coast of Mexico in unprecedented numbers off of our coast, dying, especially the last couple of years when that warm blob, mm -hmm. maybe in early sign of even worse climate change off of our coast, which is linked to our drought. Uh, a friend of mine named Greg Asner at Stanford has uh, flying aircraft all over the world shooting down laser beams basically onto trees, measuring their height, but also the health of their foliage using really special techniques. And he's finding you know, millions of trees across California had died in response to that epic, epic drought that we just had now with our epic floods, which are clearly linked to an atmosphere that's getting more energetic, which leads to more droughts and more floods at the same time. So we're seeing the effects of climate change right here in California and around the world, not only from the temperature records and the ice and the snow, but even in living things like uh, from sea slugs to sequoia trees. What would you say to anyone listening who wants to take personal action? What's the most effective way? Oh, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, there's so many things that we can do to be part of the solution. Uh, but let me let me frame this a little differently. Like when we think about tackling climate change, um, we got to remember we're joining a team. 
right? There's stuff we can do in our individual homes and in our individual lives. That's a little part of the solution, but we're also part of a community that needs to respond. We work for businesses or nonprofits that they need to respond. We live in cities and states that are also responding, and we interact with lots of other businesses that are also responding. And we need all of those levels of society to work at the same time. So while you and I might do a little bit in our homes, that's maybe a drop in the bucket, though it adds up if we put millions of drops in there. We also need to make sure that our, our cities and the companies we um, we um, um, send money to, we work for and work with, they're doing their part. And we need everybody to do their part. So um, everybody's on the hook. But the good news is we're joining a team that includes like Elon Musk. We're joining a team that includes Tim Cook and Mike Bloomberg and Jerry Brown, Republicans, Democrats, business leaders, politicians, scientists. We've got a really good team. It includes Pope Francis, for crying out loud. We've got a good team. I want to join that team. Don't you? Dr. Jonathan Foley, it's always a pleasure. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it and uh, look forward to coming back again sometime. Good. Please do. Dr. Jonathan Foley is the Executive Director of the California Academy of Sciences. I'm Jane McMillan. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program, Sundays at 8.30 a.m. and 8.30 p.m. And now available for download at kcbs.com. For all news, 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.